BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Well, greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. Okay, remember when Mike Pence was governor of Indiana and his goal was to ban abortion altogether, to make it completely illegal. And he was championing a law in Indiana And frankly, I don't recall if it got made into law and got put on hold by a court action or if it was only on the edge of being made into law. But in any case, he was championing this law that he wanted to put into effect that essentially said that a miscarriage might be an abortion. Right. There's all these stories of women who try to do self abortions or they, they you know, fall down a flight of stairs intentionally in order to, to cause an abortion. And so because a miscarriage even might be an abortion, anytime a woman is more than a week late on her menstrual period, she has to notify the local police department so they can keep an eye on her. And, you know, if you're a young and you may not remember this, this was maybe 15 years ago. But there was this phenomena when Mike Pence was governor of Indiana called periods for Pence where women all over Indiana were tweeting or emailing Mike Pence, telling him when their periods began and, oh, my period just came back, so I'm not pregnant, not to worry, I'm good for another month. Well, it's getting real in Texas. Brian Slayton is a Texas state representative, and Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick has said he wants at least two anti-abortion bills before the Texas legislature this year. One of them just got dropped. This legislation by Brian Slayton, State Representative Brian Slayton, would abolish and criminalize abortions and explicitly say that getting an abortion or performing an abortion is murder and punishable by the death penalty in Texas. Now, I remember years ago I was at the RNC when it was in New York. I think it was 2008. And... I had one of these Republican members of Congress on, and he was like, you know, abortion is murder. And I said, well, if it's murder, uh, what should the penalty be for women who get abortions? You know, I mean, we execute people for murder in America. Do you want them hung? Do you want them shot? Do you want it to be the gas chamber? And he said, well, that's up to the states. And it was one of those whoa moments. Well, that's what they're proposing in Texas. He said, it's time Republicans make it clear that we think abortion actually is murder. In 2019, State Representative Jeff Leach of Plano refused to consider a similar piece of legislation by Representative Tony Tinderholt. These are all Republicans, but he was the head of the committee that it had to go through, and he said it's not going to pass the committee. He got death threats and had to have security. The Republican, who wasn't opposed to the legislation, he just said, I don't think we can get this out of committee. This bill by Slayton so far is supported by more than 40 lawmakers, about half of the Republicans in the House of Representatives. I'm reading this piece from the Texas Tribune, texastribune.org. Slayton said, all my bill does is say that an unborn child is the same as a born child and should be treated the same way by the same laws. It would also require people to give evidence to testify about offenses involving abortions, which presumably could also involve miscarriages, particularly if you could prove they're intentional, and immediately offers immunity. So if you are the spouse or the friend of a woman who has had a miscarriage that the local police department thinks might be an abortion, 
You can be dragged before a grand jury and forced to testify under oath against your will and put in prison if you refuse to about anything you know about whether or not that woman threw herself down a flight of stairs or drank too much alcohol or took drugs that might have caused that miscarriage. In my opinion, it's time for the American Taliban, these religious fundamentalists, these religious crazies, to just get the hell out of our political life and get the hell out of women's uteruses. Wait, what say you? To the Tom Hartman program. He adds, by the way, they're hoping that passing this law will get this issue before the U.S. Supreme Court so that Amy Coney Barrett and Brett Kavanaugh can weigh in. Oh boy, oh boy. Tom Harbin here with you and Louise in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Hey, Louise, what's on your mind today? Well, I was listening to your discussion on unwanted pregnancies and the control about a baby and abortion and blah, blah, blah. You can prevent unwanted pregnancies through contraception. And the problem is the right is also against contraception. Go ahead. I was just going to add that this bill defines a, quote, unborn baby, end quote, as the moment the egg has been fertilized, not even when the egg has been implanted in the uterus. I mean, there's no medical definition like that at all. But basically what it would do is it could outlaw all forms of hormonal birth control, in other words, the pill, and it definitely outlaws the so-called day-after pill. Pardon the interruption, just just for clarification. Yeah. Yeah. Right, and the IUD. That's correct, because that that prevents implantation of an already fertilized egg, right? Exactly. So so that makes the problem even deeper as far as controlling women, Um, making the definition go that far. I mean, maybe they could say as soon as as some kid gets turned on by another kid, oops, you know. There, there's your problem. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's and and what they did. I was teaching sex education, you know, in the '80s, and uh, I have my own business now. But anyhow, I was teaching. I was teaching, and, and, and at that point, they started to try to get kids out of your class because you were, you know, and what we were teaching was um, risk, you know, risk behavior. You know, what is mm-hmm. a risk behavior? Um, and you're you're and, and you're teaching that. The lowest risk is not having sex in the first place. You know, so that's the lowest risk. And then you go from there. And what are you risking? And you're teaching that. And you're teaching, you know, health, you know, health and, and cancer and all this other stuff as well and how to take care of yourself. And so, you know, you weren't teaching anybody to do it. And then so they came up with their own sex education, which, which um, means it, like if a girl starts having sex, then um, she stops. She's still a virgin. She's a secondary virgin like um, Sarah Palin's daughter was. And, you know, it's like craziness. And you're thinking, you know, if if people could get together and at least agree on contraception, then there could be a decrease in unwanted pregnancies, which gives women more freedom to pursue what they want in life. Yeah. The last time we saw these controls been tremendous for that. Go ahead. Yeah, exactly. The last time we saw this as at the level of culture war like this was really in the 90s. And and I loved the phrase that Bill Clinton kept repeating was, you know, he said, nobody's in favor, in quotes, of abortion. He said, but, you know, this should be up to a woman and her physician. And if she wants a conversation with whoever her spiritual mentor may be and, and her partner, but this is really up to the woman themselves. And he said, we should make abortion safe, legal and rare. And the way you make it rare is with widespread availability of birth control and comprehensive sex ed and both things that the right also opposes. I really think this is just all about controlling women. I, I, I don't see uh, any, other, any other way to spin this or define it. I think that what we're looking at is misogyny or, or a patriarchy on display. Louise, i got to move along, but thank you for the call. Mark in Las Vegas. Hey, Mark, what's up? Hi, Tom. My original point was about abortion, is that Mm -hmm. over half of women lose their fetuses by the seventh week naturally, for various reasons, naturally, all right? And in most cases, they don't even know they were ever pregnant, all right? So if we're going to talk about at the moment that conception occurs, that anything that happens over that is considered suspect, 
well, then you're really going to have every single woman in this country on trial at some point, given that. You can't do well, that. I'm it's not sure crazy. that these guys would be unhappy about that. Well, yeah, you know, but uh, of course, what we need then is the Greek, out of the Greek stories, where the women just decide to stop having sex with men altogether and see how they like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this, this bill it, literally... This literally, this bill does not have an exception for rape or incest even. And like I said, it, it defines pregnancy at the moment of fertilization. And it's typically like three days after that that the fertilized egg moves from the fallopian tube down into the uterus and implants sure. itself. And a lot of the time it doesn't even do, doesn't successfully implant, as you correctly right. point out. And then, you, you know, the, the miscarriage rate is fairly high. Now, you know, I, I think it's about I, 20, 30 percent. Go ahead, Mark. Yes, you may. Yeah. yeah. We've got 15 Thank seconds. Thank you. Thank you. Sorry. Um, a couple other things. The Christian Taliban in this in this country only wants to read parts of their Bible. They're missing out on the other parts that talk about how children who disobey their parents should be killed by their parents, among other things. So if they want to go down right. that road... You know, if they want to talk about the sanctity of life, then they should stop reading and abiding by their own Bible. Right. Yes, there's some pretty brutal stuff in the Bible. I'm with you. Mark, thank you very much for the call. Laverne in Portland. Hey, Laverne, thanks for watching Free Speech TV. What's on your mind? Hi, Tom. I just wanted to give you a brief uh, update on something else that Pence did. When he was governor, he wanted to put a law in saying that uh, women could not buy contraceptives unless they were married. And then the other thing was he uh, was also saying that they could buy them if they could prove that they were getting married. You know, they have a fiancé or whatever. <laughs> so anyway, I just wanted to add that to I'm <laughs> if he got in as president, that'd be the worst thing in the world. But anyway, thanks, Tom. Thanks for all you do. Yeah. Bye bye. OK, thank you, Laverne. Great to hear from you. Kelvin in Birmingham, Alabama. Hey, Kelvin, what's up? Hey, Tom. Where are men responsibilities in uh, taking care of these kids? If they're going to do that to a woman starting from the day she's pregnant, they need to make men pay child support from the day she's pregnant. That's make a good them responsible for it, too. Yeah. Calvin, thank you. Great to hear from you. I appreciate the call. Gary in Detroit. Hey, Gary, what's up? Hey, uh, Tom. Actually, this was an argument that was made by an author who wrote a book called Birth Strike. I don't remember what her name was, but fascinating concept that essentially what this is about is in part trying to make sure that there's cheap labor, that the ruling class, the oligarchs want to make sure that women don't have access to contraception because then they will necessarily have children and our fertility rate will be propped up by virtue of women not being able to opt out of having children because frankly in this country we give no support to people who end up having children so uh, excellent I thought that that might be interesting to you yeah excellent point gary and by the way let's not forget and I guarantee you, every conservative who is behind this kind of legislation already knows this. But let's not forget that what kicked off the women's movement in the United States was not just some random moment in the history of the world where literally for the first time in thousands of years, women were demanding a place in the workplace. I mean, yes, 100 years before that in, in the 1920s, women were demanding a vote. But I'm talking the, the modern women's movement. We want to be part of the workplace and we want to have power, political, economic, and social power equal to men. That happened in the mid-60s because in 1961, the hormonal birth control pill was legalized. And in 1965, the Supreme Court struck down the law in Connecticut that said that even a married couple could not have contraception in their own house. Literally all forms of contraception in Connecticut were illegal until 1965. The Supreme right. Court struck that down. Right, yeah, in the Griswold, Griswold case, exactly. That then I mean, led to the women's movement that really got underway in 66, 67, 68, and was full-blown and exploding by 71, 72. So these conservatives are looking at that history and saying, you know, if we can take women back to no longer being able to control their reproductive cycles, to no longer having control over when they're going to get pregnant and when they're not, then we can go back to having the workplace entirely male, having men have all the political power, having men have all the economic power. We can accomplish all these wonderful things. And I really think that that's, you know, a large part of the goal behind and, the goal. So, 
You know, if I may add to that, I would say that part of it is also, think about it, you know, as someone who's been a trial lawyer for decades, it was always interesting that there was always tort reform designed to go after one of the strongest Democratic constituent groups. And women are one of the strongest Democratic constituent groups now. So it's a it's a twofer yeah. if you basically cut into their ability to earn a living and make income right. that they might be able to contribute. Yeah, tort reform going after personal injury lawyers and those kinds of things. Yeah, absolutely, Gary. Right. Uh, spot on. Gary, thank you. Jacqueline in Calliston, New Jersey. Actually, Clifton, New Jersey. Hi, Tom. I'm very nervous. It's a great honor. I listen to you every day when I can um, work from home. I am also a host producer. I was for seven years, WBAI in New York City, where Amy Goodman came from. And I'm a second generation Mm -hmm. social justice advocate and Latina, although I am of olive skin, some light skin privilege. And I'm very interested in the Meghan Markle experience just because of that anti-racism lens and colorism and everything else that I work in. But in terms of the anti-abortion, I am a a woman of faith, as are my parents. And I know, Tom, you used to, or I don't know if you still are a pastor, so you'll know where I'm coming from. But I did want to just give some, you know, insight and to please ask, because I felt a little bit this way when I was listening, that please, like, in terms of those of us like me who are staunch Democrats, progressives, who fight for marginalized and oppressed people and have a rich history of that, that you honor us as well in terms of I am anti-abortion and I am also pro-life and also um, just anti-racist. So to just please, please keep that perspective in mind because it almost sounds like a little bashing. I'm also anti-vax, but I've always been that way. So we're on the same oh, team. Let's talk okay. about each other. No, I get it, Jacqueline. And here's, here's my take on this. If you are opposed to abortion, don't get one. And if you're opposed to vaccine, don't get one. I mean, it's, but, and and I respect your right not to get one. But if you're going to impose that law on my child who gets raped, I'm upset. Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Holly in Marshall, Missouri. Hey, Holly, what's on your mind today? I'm pro-choice and anti-forced birth and a supporter of your wonderful program. You've helped me understand so many important issues, and thank you. Well, thank you, Holly. And I wasn't, I think, properly respectful to the last caller who is opposed to abortion in as much as, you know, I I said, you know, if you don't like abortion, don't get one. Well, I guess that's really my position. Your response was excellent, really. It was. It was very considerate. Thank you. I, I just don't see. Th- thank you. I just don't see where uh, government should be in this, in, you know, playing a role in this. I don't want the police between my wife and her doctor or any woman in my life. Diana in Preston, Idaho. Hey, Diana, what's up? Hi, Tom. Well, I wanted to get your input on what's been going through my mind about abortion, because I know you've studied the Bible. I'm thinking that abortion is a compassionate thing to do. And forcing a woman to, or a girl to have a baby is a cruel thing to do. I mean, doesn't it say in the Bible, we're not the body, that we are not the flesh, that we're immortal spirits, we're eternal, we never die. You cannot destroy the spirit. And if that's well, what we really are, why are they so attached to the physical body? It says, in, doesn't it say in the scriptures that we're not supposed to be attached to the physical body? Yeah, you could interpret parts of, in particular, Jesus' teachings like that. But there are places in the Bible where God causes abortions. There are places in the Bible where some of the older Old Testament prophets and others have prayed for abortions to happen to their enemies, you know, that their enemies' children will abort. There is a place, I believe it's in Deuteronomy, where if a man strikes a woman in a way that causes an abortion, he has to pay a certain number of shekels or whatever it is to her husband. And there's this whole concept of quickening. You know, when when does it go from being a uh, an impregnation to being a baby? And that, in most of history, was when the mother could feel the fetus moving. You know, when it's actually. And of course, in science, you know, we've identified this, or at least with Roe v. Wade, and then, you know, the subsequent decisions have uh, defined it as viability, which is a, a, a completely different threshold. 
But, you know, I think your point is well taken. What we're hearing is, I mean, it was right up until the 18th century, the Catholic Church was not all in on being opposed to abortion because it wasn't considered abortion unless, you know, the, the child was removed after quickening. In other words, after the mother could feel it move. So or maybe it was the 17th century, but it was, it's, it's a fairly recent thing. These modern day theocrats are just, they're very troubling to me. Diana, thank you for the call. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Medical Apartheid, The Dark History of Medical Experimentation on Black Americans from Colonial Times to the Present by Harriet A. Washington. This is from the introduction. On a sylvan stretch of New York's patrician Upper Fifth Avenue, just across from the New York Academy of Medicine, a colossus in marble august inscriptions and a bas-relief cadacious grace a memorial bordering Central Park. These laurels venerate the surgeon James Marion Sims, MD, as a selfless benefactor of women. Nor is this the only statuary erected in honor of Dr. Sims. Marble monuments to his skill, benevolence, and humanity guard his native South Carolina State House, its medical school, the Alabama Capitol grounds, and a French hospital. In the mid-19th century, Dr. Sims dedicated his career to the care and cure of women's disorders and opened the nation's first hospital for women in New York City. He attended French royalty, his Grecian visage inspired oil portraits, and in 1875 he was elected president of the American Medical Association. Hospitals still bear his name, including a West African hospital that utilizes the eponymous gynecological instruments that he first invented for surgeries upon black female slaves in the 1840s. But this benevolent image vies with the detached Marion Sims portrayed in Robert Tom's J. Marion Sims Gynecological Surgeon, an oil representation of an experimental surgery upon his powerless slave, Betsy. Sims stands aloof, arms folded, one hand holding a metroscope, the forerunner of the speculum, as he regards the kneeling woman in a coolly evaluative medical gaze. His tie and morning coat contrast with her simple servant's dress, head rag, and bare feet. The painting, commissioned and distributed by the Park Davis Pharmaceutical House more than a century after the surgeries, as one of its uh, History and Medicine in Pictures series, takes telling liberties with the historical facts. Tom portrays Betsy as a fully clothed, calm slave woman who kneels complacently on a small table, hand modestly raised to her breast before a trio of white male physicians. Two other slave women peer around a sheet, apparently hung for modesty's sake, in a childlike display of curiosity. This innocuous tableau could hardly differ more from the gruesome reality in which each surgical scene was a violent struggle between the slaves and physicians, and each woman's body was a bloodied battleground. 
Each naked, unanesthetized slave woman had to be forcibly restrained by the other physicians through her shrieks of agony as Sims determinedly sliced, then sutured her genitalia. The other doctors who could fled when they could bear the horrific screams no longer. It then fell to the women to restrain one another. I wanted to reproduce Tom's painting on the cover of this book, or at least in the text, but when I asked permission of its copyright holder, Pfizer Incorporated, the company insisted on reviewing the entire manuscript of this book before making a decision. As an independent scholar, I could not acquiesce to this, and I used another cover image. When I renewed my request to use the image within the text, Pfizer agreed to base its decision upon reading this chapter and an outline of the book. The Pfizer executives apparently were uncomfortable with what they read because they refused to grant permission to reproduce this telling image or even respond to my query after I supplied the requested chapter and outline. This act of censorship exemplifies the barriers some choose to erect in order to veil the history of unconscionable medical research with blacks. Betsy's voice has been silenced by history, but as one reads Sim's biographers and his own memoirs, a haughty, self-absorbed researcher emerges, a man who bought black women slaves and addicted them to morphine in order to perform dozens of exquisitely painful, distressingly intimate vaginal surgeries. Not until he had experimented with his surgeries on Betsy and her fellow slaves for years did Sim's essay to cure white women. Was Sim's a savior? or a sadist. It depends, I suppose, on the color of the women, you ask. Marion Sims epitomizes the two faces, one benign, one malevolent, of American medical research. Quote, of all the forms of inequality, injustice in health is the most shocking and the most inhumane. In 1965, Martin Luther King Jr. spoke those words in Montgomery, Alabama, at the end of the Selma to Montgomery march that had been attended by the black and white physicians of the Medical Committee for Human Rights. King had invited the doctors not only to give medical help to injured marchers, but also to witness the abuse suffered at the hands of segregationists. With these almost unnoticed words, King ushered in a new era in civil rights because, as delegate to Congress Donna Christensen Christian, MD, chair of the Congressional Black Caucus Health Brain Trust, has declared, health disparities are the civil rights issue of the 21st century. Thus, Dr. King's alarm over racial health injustice was prescient, and were he alive today, his concerns would be redoubled. Mounting evidence of the racial health divide confronts us everywhere we look, from doubled black infant death rates to African-American life expectancies that fall years behind whites. Infant mortality of African-Americans is twice that of whites, and black babies born in more racially segregated cities have higher rates of mortality. The book, Medical Apartheid by Harriet A. Washington. And welcome back. Tom Harmon here with you. Judy in Sacramento, California. Hey, Judy, thank you for calling. What is on your mind today? Well, I just really wanted to share something with the folks that are against abortions. I was a victim of a rape when I was very young. I had no alternatives, so I ended up pregnant and giving birth to a child that, uh, to, hate to say this, I actually hate it. I sat for nine months hating my life, trying desperately to figure out what was I going to do. When this happened, I was being groomed for a very important job. I lost all of that. I actually lost my life. Every day, I remember and have to go through this, and I hear this stuff on the radio, and it just brings it up again, over and over and over. There's nothing we can do right now for me, but we can for others. They do not, women do not deserve to have that kind of hell for nine months and the rest of their life. So anybody that thinks abortion is wrong, I'd just love to talk to them personally. But I'll tell you what, they'll never get to see me because I'm in hiding. I have 
put myself in a position that for the best of my life, I felt COVID was like a blessing for me because I can stay away from people and they can stay away from me. Thank you, Tom. That's all I needed to say. Thank you for being there. Good day. Thank you, Judy. I'm so sorry to hear that story, but it is so, it's so heartfelt. And, and it speaks to why, I mean, the cruelty, essentially, of this legislator from Texas who doesn't even have an exception for rape or incest in his women who get abortions must receive the death penalty bill that has now 40 supporters in the Texas legislature. It's just mind-boggling. John in Oak Park, Illinois. Let's try John. What's on your mind, John? Hi. Um, earlier, I heard mention of the uh, anti-abortion legislation, uh, which is uh, determined at the moment of conception. Correct. The, the assumption being responsibility falls upon the woman. Actually, two individuals are Correct. involved and should fall under this law. Fines, jail time, whatever penalties. And if this the death is the intention, which, yes, if this is the intention, and I assume they really want to ban everything that isn't whatever, in this context, and if this is brought forward, that both individuals are involved in any decision or any legislation, would this be received in the same context? I mean, would everybody... Well, what if one of the individuals, per Judy's call a minute ago, is a rapist? Well, or just, you know, whatever the uh, college get-together, the hookup. Right. If the guy just disappears off the map and is not held responsible, he should be brought into it. And then also the parents realizing that, hey, listen, my son is going all over town. Uh, he may face the death penalty. Yeah. I don't really like this. See, I, I just think the state has no business in this. I think that this is a medical, we're talking a medical situation, and it should be dealt with by physicians and informed, fully informed individuals, patients, people, the women specifically. Um, but that's just me. Tamara, or Tamara, in Joplin, Missouri, you are on the air. Hey, Tom. Nothing makes me see red and makes me madder than when we Democrats allow them to bring the Bible into a woman's right to choose. Our Constitution guarantees freedom from religion, and when they bring religion, their religion, and their Bible, and their God into my life, they're violating my rights. Forced pregnancy is a form of slavery, using your religion to enslave a woman to have a baby. I saw a meme today, and it basically said, I went with my boyfriend today to get his vasectomy, and there was no one outside the clinic screaming that he was killing his children. Right. Yeah. And yeah. we and Democrats need to not allow ever the Bible to be brought into a woman's rights to choose. Never, ever, ever. Yeah, I'm with you, Tamara. Thank you very much for the call. Charlotte in Tucson, Arizona. Hey, Charlotte. I had an abortion in my 20s. It was my decision. It was my human right. Nobody has the right to tell me what to do with my body because it was given to me by God. That's the only religion you can bring into this. This is my body. I don't put my hands on men's members, and they keep their hands off of mine. And that's the way it is. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome, Charlotte. And uh, I think you're you're one of about uh, 20, 25 percent of all women in America who have had an abortion. Number one and number exactly. two, there's an old joke that you know if men could get pregnant, abortion would become a sacrament. And exactly. <laughs> there's a lot of truth yeah. to that. Charlotte, Absolutely. thank you for the call. It's, it's great to hear from you. Thank you so much. Hey, Sus in McAllen, Texas. Hey, hey, Sus, what's up? Hey, greetings from the Rio Grande Valley. Just. Uh 
you are the smartest man in, on TV or radio, and I trust your opinion. I'm calling really because sometimes I feel we're in an episode of Game of Thrones. We're discussing many topics, but the one topic that worries me for the sake of myself and my children is global warming. It's a one topic that affects all of us. You know, I'm from the Rio Grande Valley, have relatives in Mexico, and I kind of keep track of what's going on in Mexico. There's a terrible, terrible drive going on right now in Mexico. Even here in the Rio Grande Valley, we had a hurricane, and we're undergoing a terrible drought. And uh, these people coming from Guatemala, from Honduras, they're coming here not because they want to, but because they're doing it out of necessity. I hear reports of uh, people from Venezuela and Colombia going over to Chile because they're going through terrible droughts. Yeah, we're seeing climate uh, refugees. Yeah, greater thunder. And there's going to be more. And we're, and we're going to start having climate refugees here in the United States. Hey, sis, I'm going to, I, I've got to move along, but thank you for the call and thanks for your points. I do appreciate it. Jim in Hawthorne, California. Hey, Jim, what's on your mind today? Tom, I got a stone in my shoe. It's anti-vaxxer okay. Robert Kennedy Jr. Yeah, yeah. I get it, Jim. I, you know, I had him on, the, on my program a couple of times back four or five years ago, and at that point in time, his sales pitch or his, his uh, uh, whatever you want to call it, I don't want to characterize it in a negative way, but his routine, his line was, really, we just, we're all in favor of vaccines. We just think that uh, childhood vaccines need, be, need to be spaced out more, and we need to get rid of the mercury-based preservatives in them. And I was okay with that. But it has gotten wilder and wilder and to the point now where his sister wrote an op-ed in, I think it was the Washington Post a couple of months ago, just basically disowning him for just a full-out anti-vax position. And, you know, he was a big, big-time lawyer in the environmental movement for quite some time. I think that they probably disowned him. I think he was a lawyer for the Sierra Club, as I recall. But, but you know, every movement has a few people on its fringe. I mean, you know, it's, uh, no movement is pure and homogenous and, and all good. Uh, well, he had a lot of people I, I, listening you know, to his I, speech back in the summer, you know, in, in, I guess it was August. There was like 100,000 people listened to him in Berlin. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was hard. I didn't even know about it until about two months later. I guess it wasn't really covered in the media. No, I don't even know about it now. What are you talking about? Yeah. yeah. Bobby Kennedy went to Germany during the COVID yeah, epidemic? He, 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 I guess he was in, he was in Germany in, in August. He gave this speech. There was like 100,000 people. That, that was a conservative estimate. Why are all those people oh. in Germany listening to a guy that should be thrown out of the left? Yeah. Well, he may no longer represent the left. I mean, it was the, you know, when I said that a notorious anti-vaxxer was on Laura Ingram's podcast last week, that notorious anti-vaxxer was Robert Kennedy. Um, so he's doing Fox News, apparently. I, I, I just don't know what's going on. I mean, I used to know this guy and respect him tremendously. And I'm just, I'm baffled by it. Uh, I, 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 I just to me, Tom, that if the right and the left can agree on something, that's power. Yeah. But agreeing on not getting a vaccine in the middle of a pandemic seems like the wrong thing to agree on. That seems like it. Yeah, seems like it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, think, I, think, I think we can stipulate that, Jim. We can stipulate All that. Right. But, the, but, but what, what I find truly shocking is that 5% of Democrats say that they're, they don't trust the vaccine. 40% of Republicans say that they don't. And that in this one example in Missouri, which is the most recent one that, that is uh, you know, getting a lot of press now, they went into a rural area that was uh, you know, roughly three quarters Republican votes for, for Donald Trump in the 2020 election. And they couldn't, literally couldn't give the vaccine away. There were spoiled, you know, over 100, over 150 uh, spoiled cases uh, vaccines, and and they they when they left, they still had over a thousand doses that they couldn't give out. And at the same time, in the big cities in Missouri, there's just huge demand. It's it's just it's just mind-boggling. Jim, thanks for the call, and uh, thanks for listening to us on KPFK. We'll be right back here on the Tom Hartman program, exposing the con in conservative.
Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you, uh, defending America from the conservative weapons of mass deception. I have to, I just have to share this story with you real quick. It is so cool. I tweeted about this. If you check out my Twitter feed, you can find all the links to it. Zoe Lofgren, the Democrat who represents the 19th District of California in the U.S. House of Representatives, has nailed 120 Republicans in the House. I mean, just nailed them. Um, She compiled the social media posts from these 120 Republicans from Election Day to the end of January, all posts that, quote, are related to the violence on January 6th and claims regarding the legitimacy of the 2020 presidential election. And, I mean, one of the most shocking is, uh, and she's got this whole database, and you can actually see all the posts. I checked Oregon and I saw, you know, we are one Republican representative. His tweets were offensive but tame. But then I went to Florida and checked Matt Gates and it was like, whoa. And she notes, I mean, her office aggregated this report as evidence for expulsion of each of these 120 members. She's trying to get these 120 Republicans expelled from the U.S. House of Representatives. And there's an article about it at democracydocket.com. But I, I just go to Zoe Lofgren's website, which I'm guessing is House, is, would be Lofgren, L-O-F-G-R-E-N.house.gov. That's 99% of the time, that's the, the format is, uh, it starts with the name, the last name, L-O-F-G-R-E-N.house.gov. And uh, I'm guessing it's right there on her homepage. If you have any trouble finding it, it should be fairly easy to, to Google uh, or DuckDuckGo. 120 House members share incendiary social media content leading up to Capitol attack is the breaking headline over at democracydocket.com. And, and of course, as I said, I tweeted the thing out, and so you can just easily find that and, and get the link to that. So all that said, let's pick up your phone calls here. Larry in Minneapolis. Hey, Larry, what's on your mind today? Yeah, I wanted to address H.R. 1. I am uh, counted amongst the percentage of Americans who have a physical or visual impairment. And years ago when I first started voting, you had to have one of each party election judge help you operate the voting machine. Now, Mm -hmm. in the last decade or so, we have enjoyed, at least here in the Minnesota area, having a device that actually can enlarge or read the ballot to you, and you can fill it out yourself. You don't have to rely on any one individual. But mm-hmm. there is also a technical devel- uh, development going on where a person who you know can request a absentee ballot if they don't feel comfortable in going to a ballot. Uh, to a polling place and allows you to access the ballot in your area and then print it out yourself and mail it in independently. I am a member, you know, I really appreciate the ability to independently cast, you know, fill out my ballot when I'm, you know, going into the electoral cycles. Because I, you know, something about not being able, having believing in the secret ballot that we all enjoy in this country. 
And uh, I wanted to know, you know, I'm sure there's a provision in HR1 helping allowing that development to continue. Mm-hmm. Larry, I, I have not read the minutia of HR1. I'm, I'm broadly familiar with the large pieces of it, but it's a multi-hundred page piece of legislation. But that would be a question to call your U.S. representative on, whoever represents right. you in the House, or one of your two senators, although uh, I'm, right. I doubt that Ron Johnson's going to know much about it. But your other senator is, uh, is it Tina Smith? Am I remembering correctly? Tina your, your Democratic Smith and Amy Klobuchar, right. Right. Oh, Amy Klobuchar. That's right. I'm, I'm mixing up Minnesota and Wisconsin. My apologies. Either one of them yep. could tell you, or their offices. Right. Yeah. So uh, I just so wanted to bring that up them. for the general information. Although those of right. us who have certain challenges in life. <laughs> yeah. Well, you did a fine job of it, Larry. Larry, thank you very much. I, I appreciate the call and thanks for listening. To AM nine fifty there in Minneapolis. Morris in Long Beach, California. Hey, Morris, what's up? The big blue wave is still rolling, everybody. The big blue wave. You know, you've got five. GOP senators that are not going to run for re-election next year. Is that right, uh, Professor Hartman? They're going to yeah, we just had an, a new announcement. Uh, what was it? Roy Blunt of Missouri, as I recall, uh, announced that he's not going to run? Yeah, that he was one of them. These, these guys are walking away from power. And you know why? You see, the, Repu- the Republicans, in my opinion, in my opinion, they don't have a platform. You know how they roll? This is how the Republicans roll. They roll with subliminal racist messaging. They exploit people's angers and fears with a mean-spirited tone. And that's just not going to cut it no more. And then they really went over the cliff. Let me tell you when they went over the cliff. You got 60% of the Republican Party favored what Mr. Biden is doing with the rescue plan, right? And they had, didn't have one Republican, not one vote for it. These guys are in trouble. Now, that's why I called you, Professor, but I want to talk to you about this, that George Floyd thing that's going on. Do you know that they quiz the jurors? Like, have you ever been to a protest? Did you hold a sign? What did the sign say? Right. That kind of thing. Now, watch this. Well, they have not yet quizzed those jurors. There is a jury questionnaire, or, or maybe I'm wrong about this, Morris, but my understanding was that the jury questionnaire included questions like that, and that was one of the things that was being debated or fought by the attorneys on both sides. The, but maybe they've actually polled the jury. But I, I thought they had not yet impaneled a jury. Well, they haven't. I'm not going to say they've impaneled them. I'm saying they're quizzing them. And what I'm, my point that I'm trying to drive right. to is we should do the same thing we should do the same thing with our police officers. All police officers in America should oh, yeah. be vetted. If we can vet the goddamn National Guard, we can vet the police department. Now, we're going to find out a whole lot of stuff after this insurrection went down. We're finding out that the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers and all these other guys, they tie in to law enforcement. Not so much for legitimacy, uh, right, to kill people, but to find out the tactics and whatnot. So we got to stop that right there. So just go on and vet the police. And when politicians are running, particularly Democrats, you, you say you're with us, then to talk like that. That shouldn't offend nobody. And Professor, please do this for me. Please do this for me. I'll make a donation to your program. Find me one famous white victim that is uh, of a police shooting or killing in this country. Just one famous one, and I'll be good to go, because I can tell you books with like 5,000 names. In our generation, you can count 10 and even 30 about it. I'm just looking for one, one white guy. That's it. Yeah. And thank you for this time. Yeah. I don't have that name for you, Morris. I, I do not have that name for you. And when you said that the Republicans don't have a platform, you are absolutely right. In 2020, the Republican Party did not literally, and, and in my lifetime, this has never happened. They literally did not put up a platform. None. They just basically, whatever Donald Trump says, that's what we believe. And I, I, I find that insane, you know, bizarre. Uh, it's just, it, it's, it's just incredible. Mike in Bailey, Colorado. Thank you, Morris, by the way. Uh, Mike in Bailey, Colorado. Hey, Mike, what's up? Howdy, Tom. Hey, I'm really hoping HR1 does pass, uh, but I'm already seeing how the Republicans are doing a workaround. Uh, I didn't pay attention to when Kentucky announced how if you uh, insulting a police officer, law enforcement officer, is now going to be a crime. But now yeah, Tennessee, uh, Tennessee has now introduced and is passing where they're redefining misdemeanors as felonies. Uh, misdemeanors were like if you're out in a protest, and let's say you have a sign, and the police surge forward and your sign hits their, their helmet, you can be arrested and convicted of a felony. And well, you could already. They would just call it battery. Oh, they would say that no. that's, a, that's an assault on a police officer. 
Well, what am I missing? I'm saying if you're just standing still and they surge into you and you touch them in any way, it can be defined mm-hmm. as a felony. Uh, doing the I same see. thing with uh, how they're defining a riot, uh, it's, it's very subjective, yeah. and they're, they're increasing it into felonies. So once you're convicted, you lose your voting rights permanently. Yeah, amazing. Mike, this is the modern-day extension of Richard Nixon's Law and Order campaign, and you know, which put millions of people in jail. Yeah, and, and, it's, and it's nothing more than a naked attempt to suppress dissent. Listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. It's the place where we dare to ask, is Walmart a person? And we dare to say, no, not a chance. This is the Tom Hartman Program. For the Tom Hartman Book Club today, it's Waking the Witch, Reflections on Women, Magic, and Power by Pam Grossman. This is from the introduction. Witches have always walked among us, populating societies and storyscapes across the globe for thousands of years. From Circe to Hermione, from Morgan Le Fay to Marie Laveau, the witch has long existed in the tales we tell about ladies with strange powers who can harm or heal. And although people of all genders have been considered witches, it's a word that is now usually associated with women. Throughout most of history, she has someone to fear, an uncanny other who threatens our safety or manipulates reality for her own mercurial purposes. She's a pariah, a persona non grata, a boogie woman to defeat and discard. Although she's often been deemed a destructive entity in actuality, a witchy woman has historically been far more susceptible to attack than an inflictor of violence herself. As with other terrifying outsiders, she occupies a paradoxical role in cultural consciousness as both vicious aggressor and vulnerable prey. Over the past 150 years or so, however, the witch has done another magic trick by turning from a fright into a figure of inspiration. She is now as likely to be the heroine of your favorite TV show as she is its villain. She might show up in the form of your Wiccan co-worker or the beloved musician who gives off a sorcerous vibe in videos or on stage. There's also a chance that she is you and that witch is an identity you've taken upon yourself for any number of reasons, heartfelt or flippant, public or private. Today, more women than ever are choosing the way of the witch, whether literally or symbolically. They're floating down catwalks and sidewalks in gauzy black clothing and adorning themselves with Pinterest-worthy pentagrams and crystals. They're filling up movie theaters to watch witchy films and gathering in back rooms and backyards to do rituals, consult tarot cards, and set life-altering intentions. They're marching in the streets with Hex the Patriarchy placards and casting spells each month to try to constrain the commander-in-chief. Year after year, articles keep proclaiming it's the season of the witch as journalists try to wrap their heads around the mushrooming witch trend. And all of this begs the question, why? Why do witches matter? Why are they seemingly everywhere right now? What exactly are they? And why the hell won't they go away? I get asked such things over and over, and you would think that after a lifetime of studying and writing about witches as well as hosting a witch-themed podcast and being a practitioner of witchcraft myself, my answers would be succinct. In fact, I find that the more I work with the witch, the more complex she becomes. Hers is a slippery spirit. Try to pin her down and she'll only recede further into the dark, deep wood. I do know this for sure, though. Show me your witches and I'll show you your feelings about women. The fact that the resurgence of feminism and the popularity of the witch are ascending at the same time is no coincidence. The two are reflections of each other. That said, this current witch wave is nothing new. I was a teen in the 1990s, the decade that brought us such pop culture as Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Charmed, and The Craft. Not to mention riot girls and third wave feminists who taught me that female power could come in a variety of colors and sexualities. I learned that women could lead a revolution while wearing lipstick and combat boots, and sometimes even a cloak. But my own witchly awakening came at an even earlier age. Morganville, New Jersey, where I was raised, was a solidly suburban town, but it it retained enough natural land features back then to 
still feel a little bit scruffy in spots. We had a small patch of woods in our backyard that abutted a horse farm, and the two were separated by a wisp of running water that we could cross via a plank of wood. When we were little, my older sister Emily and I would sometimes venture to the other side where we could feed the horses, an act that still scares me to this day, and pick fistfuls of clover. But the majority of our time was spent on our side of the stream, threading ourselves through the thicket of trees that served as our personal forest. In one corner of the yard, a giant puddle would form whenever it rained, surrounded by a border of ferns. We called this spot our magical place. That it would vanish and then reappear only added to its mystery. It was a portal to the unknown. These woods are where I first remember doing magic, entering that state of deep play where imaginative action becomes reality. I would spend hours out there creating rituals with rocks and sticks, drawing secret symbols in the dirt, losing all track of time. It was a space that felt holy and wild, yet still strangely safe. As we age, we're supposed to stop filling our heads with such nonsense. Unicorns are to be traded in for Barbie dolls, though both are mythical creatures to be sure. We lose our tooth fairies, walk away from our wizards. Dragons get slain on the altar of our youth. Most kids grow out of their magic phase. I grew further into mine. My grandma Trudy was a librarian at the West Long Branch Library, which meant I got to spend many a long afternoon lurking between the 001.9 and 135 Dewey Decimal sections, reading about Bigfoot and dream interpretation in Nostradamus. Waking the Witch by Pam Grossman. Ed in Redondo Beach, California. Hey, Ed, what's on your mind today? Well, hey, good day to you. Um, I want to circle back to uh, your disagreement with Louise about uh, whether it's power or money that motivates Trump. And um, mm -hmm. I would say that, that it's neither and both. And what I mean by that is that uh, both of those are fields of competition in which you know, we award prestige in our society, along with the, the media, the entertainment being a third one. And right. what really motivates Trump isn't, you know, money or power or, or, or anything. It's, it's, it's his narcissism. It's being the biggest guy in any room. So it's status. In. It's status, exactly. And those are just currencies of status and different currencies You're of right. status. And, and so, you know, in the end, it, you know, it's, it's not that he wants money or he wants power. He wants to be the guy that has all the oxygen in the room. Right. And to go back to some of our conversations with Dr. Justin Frank, the psychiatrist and professor of psychiatry at George Washington in D.C., uh, and the author of Trump on the Couch. A lot of this goes back to Trump's childhood, where he felt completely unloved. And during the school year, his parents shipped him off to a, uh, to a private prep school, a private boarding school that pretended it was a military academy, you know, that had uniforms and stuff, but it wasn't actually part of the military. And right. then during the summers when he came home, his mother went to Scotland without him. And, he, and so, yeah. you know, he, he, he was like raised by nobody except during the, during the summer. His father was there, but, you know, he had a nanny and he had uh, housekeepers and all this kind of stuff. But this is a guy who has got such a deep hole in his soul, such a such an empty space where most of us have some recollection of having been loved and nurtured and looked out for as children. His hole, right. that hole in his heart is so deep, you can't fill it. There's not enough love well, yeah. in the world to fill it. In the end, he's just a sad little boy, and and uh, which is really yeah, very pathetic point. in a way. If you if you want to, you know, have a an same image was true of Hitler, Trump by the way. No, this is true. This is true. If you want to have an image of, of Trump and hell, though, go back to that uh, that correspondence dinner where Obama made him the butt mm -hmm. of a lot of jokes. I was there. And, yeah, and, and, and but but here's the kicker: is that the next day he didn't even get to seize control of the news cycle again by by you know you know lashing back or anything because the next day the news was full of the death of a bin laden Osama and, uh, bin laden so, yeah. yeah right and so you know he he was you know he was belittled and and then he had no chance to even did, say anything back because did you see the no story about trump in new york city uh, yeah he pulled up at trump tower in a limousine and got out and across the street, everybody knew he was coming, right? So across the street, there was a whole bunch of press positioned there. And he got out of the car, and in the New York Times it says, and he waved to his one lone supporter. 
<laughs> there was oh literally one guy standing there with like, like a Trump sign or something, you know, who was like, yay, Trump is here. Is, is here. And I'm guessing yeah, he was yeah. going for, you know, for a meeting with his bookkeeping people because they're now subpoenaing all these records. I mean, they're going to nail him to the wall for tax evasion and, and bank fraud. I, I don't see right. how he's going to get out of this. It's, it's amazing. Ed, thanks for the call. It's great to hear from you, and I appreciate it. You know, it's always nice to hear from you. I appreciate the call. And don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Democracy really, I mean, the whole idea of democracy is the demos. It's us, right? The people. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 